bouncing back is often the description that someone gives for resilience, isn't it? Your ability to bounce back. What are your thoughts? The problem with bounce back is we never go back to exactly where we were. We bounce forward. Welcome to The Visible Leader, the podcast that challenges conventional leadership and inspires you to create a workplace culture that empowers your team. Join me as I talk to thought leaders and change makers about practical ways to apply new learning and rethink the status quo. Get ready to become a visible leader in your organization. One of my first jobs after university, I got a leaving present after having worked there a while, which was a hardback book with pictures of rhinos in showing how developing a thick skin was what I should be aiming for. Now, this was the first time I heard that apparently I had flimsy skin and was a bit of a shock, to be honest. Leaders, this is not the way to give feedback. Just a side note there. Anyway, it could have led me to think that being a thick skin, resilient rhino was the only way to be in the workplace and what I should be aiming for. Well, my conversation with Dr. Lee Williams is challenging that somewhat. Listen up for his example of climbing Everest. I think this is a great example to show where having a resilient superpower might lead to your downfall. I hope you enjoy listening to this discussion as much as I enjoyed having it. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Lee Williams, who is a behavioral scientist with over 30 years experience helping organizations improve productivity and performance. He's done this work across many organizations, including American Express, Tesco, and DuPont. He has an undergraduate degree in pharmacology and physiology, an MBA and a DBA from Alliance Manchester Business School, where he completed the UK's first empirical study of business mental toughness. And the reason I have invited Lee to come and have a chat with me on my podcast is because the subject today is resilience and everything we might mean or not know we mean by that word. So welcome, Lee. Really great to be speaking to you. Thank you. Yes, nice to be here this morning. First question is going to be easy for you. Well, first, first question, actually, this isn't one, one I prepared for, but I had to look up what DBA was, not a qualification I'd come across. So I Googled it. I know that. Yeah, so a DBA doctorate in business administration is uh, essentially a follow on from an MBA. Ordinarily, you uh you complete a dba once you've once you've completed an mba and they came in well it just become popular to be fair i think um partly as a consequence of people wanting to do something after an mba um and what it really is is equivalent qualification is a phd whereas a phd looks at creating new theory a dba is really looking at testing existing theories so it's more of a consultancy oriented type um, research program, although 
the academics don't like the consultancy element to it. So it has to, you have to pass a sort of quite a lot of rigor with regards to the the research questions that you're looking to answer. Which, to be fair for me, when I first started it, I was looking at something called Lean Six Sigma, which, from an academic perspective, they weren't overly happy about. Um, and and for a number of reasons, I, I switched to mental toughness, which they were very happy about. Uh, so we took uh, essentially some research that had been completed in sport and looked to see if we could see the same characteristics of mental toughness within business. So, yeah, it, it's... MBA, very broad, look at all aspects of business. DBA, very narrow, very deep into one particular aspect. Uh, And you go from an environment where you're working with lots of different people, different challenges, different experiences, and and different play on resilience in a sense, to something that's almost the complete opposite to what an MBA experience is, certainly on the full-time programme. You know, all of these things give you different experiences and different yeah. challenges that you sort of either embrace or you uh, you adapt to. Um, or, or some people just naturally thrive in, in certain aspects of these these sorts of things. So, uh, yeah. Um, but ironically, resilience and mental toughness plays a part quite significantly in, you know, completing the MBA yeah, or the true. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a very nice connection there. I bet it does. I mean, I got an I got an award for the best paper, which was a bit. I was quite surprised actually when uh, when I did the program, but but partly I, I think it was because mine was popular. Mine was understandable, whereas some of the other DBAs that people were completing were, you know, the option bond pricing of Nigerian fruit farmers and things like that, which you know people are like. That's hard mm, to connect with, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, whereas mental toughness is something that. You know, like resilience is something that people connect with quite readily. Mm. Excellent. Well, I'm glad I I checked. Uh, it's, it sounds really interesting, and I'm sure you'll weave in bits from that into our conversation. So first question, really, is what do you mean by the word resilience? So resilience, for me, is two things, in a sense. it's It's a response. Um, so someone can be resilient in, in a situation, but I think it's also a state. So you you can operate in a in a resilient way, um, and so and, and generally a, a, to a stimulus or an event. So usually negative. You know the the research on resilience, the the background and you know, most of the material, if not all the material, is really about how people overcome adversities. And there are a number of aspects to that in terms of you know, if you are resilient, when the adversity comes along, it sort of bounces off you. You're almost resistant. And we don't really talk about resistance, but in a sense, it, you you are resistant to that adversity and almost the, the highest level of resilience is resistance. It just You're just not affected by any of those things. Whereas at the beginning, there's almost a journey to go through to become resilient or resistant and so there are occasions when you're not actually resilient uh, in terms of a state and so that process of becoming resilient uh, i.e. how you respond how you overcome adversity so uh, i think it's also in a sense when you talk about as a state about 
maintain a sort of relative stability, sort of healthy levels of psychology and, and sort of physical physical functioning, and sort of the ability to positively adapt to to exposures, um, of, of you know disrupting events, you know, and, and it can be things that are quite dramatic or, or, or significant such as the death of a loved one or a serious injury in say sports or, or just generally a, you know a serious illness and it can be minor things it can be a criticism um, mm-hmm. ironically it, it can be a compliment um the, the sort of the differences between mental toughness and resilience and certainly from the research that i've done is that what mental toughness brings to conversation with with athletes and business performers is the ability to cope with positive pressure and negative pressure and to deal with success and to deal with failure whereas resilience is is predominantly oriented towards adversity it's about mm-hmm. things that set us back um, there's a you know, primarily negative uh, event uh, response and uh, and a state that you can get to to be able to cope with essentially adversity and negativity so yeah so that's that that for me is that that's what resilience is and it's a component of mental toughness when we did the research and a significant component of mental toughness but there are other aspects of the work that i did that but to be fair in in the resilience world as it's expanding these subject areas are starting to to overlap you know in, in mental toughness we talk about emotional intelligence and as, aspects of emotional intelligence being components of our ability and, and I generally I call it culpability so you know how do we actually how do we perform so um, I have I have a model which you know perhaps we'll talk about a bit later that, that brings these things together um, yeah so yeah for me it's a state and it's also a, a sort of process um, a response a series of responses so it- it feels that the higher the better, and I think that's the thing we're looking to challenge today a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. It's that sort of misconception. It's always positive, and the more the better. But it, I mean, it's like anything that everybody's breakable. That nobody is impervious to to stress or or challenge or or adversity or things happening to them. And it can be the littlest thing that that sets somebody off. You know, it it can be a, a comment, it can be a look, um, it, it it can be very minor or super super significant. You know, the you know the death of a parent, or a child, or a loved one, or illness, and and so people can appear to be resilient. And that appearance necessarily doesn't necessarily mean that they are. You know, we can be stoic. Um, but that's not necessarily resilience or, or it is a component for a period of time or a, a manifestation of our behaviours. But when you've got somebody who is resilient, it's almost a test. If you look at sport, for example, sports people aren't resilient because they don't want to be because they want to they, they want to break themselves in a way. They want to reach a point which they can't go any further. The, you know, the natural development of our muscles is about breaking our muscles and, and allowing them to rebuild as we're exercising. We stretch, we tear muscles, not muscle tears in the sense of injury, but we, we tear those muscle fibers so that they develop and grow. 
And so our natural development requires us to, in a sense, have an element of failure. Genetics requires failure. We, we need that failure for natural selection and development. But when we sort of look at it from a, 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 from a business perspective, uh, you know, from, from a sporting perspective, we're always looking to push ourselves to the point where we sort of almost can't go any further. And that's almost an, an acceptable, you know, in sports, people have that sort of mindset of pushing themselves to, you know, essentially falling over, breaking down. Um, whereas in business concepts uh, of resilience in the workplace, then we we don't necessarily want our people failing. We, we don't want to push them to that breaking point, to the burnout point, because, because we will reach it. You know, you can keep pushing people to a point where their resilience levels will, will ultimately fail. And I think the other challenge within all of that is that, it's relative. So if you've got a really resilient individual in a team that can cope with a lot of stress and pressure or certain scenarios, but then you have other individuals who can't, then treating them all the same way creates a problem. And do you treat everybody to the most resilient individual or do you treat everybody to the least resilient individual? Um, because you're either not going to necessarily stretch the people who are resilient and perhaps want more, and you're going to pander to potentially those that don't want to be stretched. Um, and so it's really difficult to create that dynamic when you've got lots of different levels of resilience in an environment. You, you need to create sort of resilience harmony. Um, and that's, that, that's a challenge um, because, you know, everybody has different, you know, it's a little bit like a graphic equalizer, depending upon the situation. Some people are more or less resilient to, other things you know and it can be as simple as when someone says you know do you want a slice of cake or a cup of tea and some people are like i shouldn't but yeah and then other people are like no because i'm on a diet and i'm sticking to it, it you know it, it it's those it's the ability to uh what i would call from a mental toughness perspective how he's having a tough attitude it's about being able to stay true to you know your attitudes your beliefs what you're trying to achieve and and, and that's an element of resilience and and other people perhaps weaker and go actually you know i don't need to i can i can have, a, can have one slice of cake or i can miss the gym tomorrow i'll go the day after and and things like that so i think um it's not always positive um we need to understand that breaking people from a you know a workplace perspective and treating them like for example they're like corporate athletes isn't isn't the same way we can't take that sporting mindset and transfer it and that was part of my research into business we need to understand resilience levels we also need to understand that resilience levels change over time and also change due to our physiology um so you know the, the male resilience levels to things are different to the female levels of resilience to things you know your your physiology is very different to my physiology um, and the sort of chemicals that go around our body and our hormones have play an impact on what we're risen to and what we're not. You know, my, my wife's going through um, menopause at the moment, and one of the things that she she, she describes is that she's just less tolerant. Mm-hmm. Her, her resilience to you know the children squabbling or um, you know me leaving a you know a dirty cup on the sideboard, you know, <laughs> is is a lot is a lot lower these days. Um, and so her, her resilience to being able to, you know, not respond to these things is different as a consequence of the fact that she just feels less tolerant to things. 
and again that comes with stress and and other types of environments where you know we're put under pressure so i think this sort of there's this misconception that you're resilient tick box it's sort of like it's not an exam it's not a badge it's not a qualification Uh, it's very contextual it changes and and also when you start to think about team and then organizational dynamics um it becomes much more complex so this sort of mm-hmm. let's put everybody on a on a one day resilience course or solve our problems really doesn't, doesn't take that box. So mm. thinking about myself, let's put me outside of a team perspective. Should I be aiming to be as resilient as possible as often as possible? I, I think, in a sense, for our own, it, it depends on it depends on. So, so I'll give you an example. Probably, I ride my bike. And I, you know, I like riding, I'm quite heavy, but I like riding up hills. And so I'm not really built for riding up hills, but I like the challenge of riding up hills. And there were, there were a couple of hills around here that are really tough. Um, and there's one in particular that I've, I've not, I've not actually cycled all the way to the top of it yet. I've, I've actually failed. My resilience to be able to climb to the top has failed. And I see that as a challenge, right? And, and that's okay. Whereas in other things, I don't want to necessarily fail. I don't want to fail as a, you know, as a as a father or a husband. I don't want to, my resilience to fail in those areas. And so I think it it is still contextual. So I think yes, we want to be resilient, but also there are times when we we will accept that there'll be some adversity. We'll accept that you know there'll be sometimes we won't meet our objectives. Um, and as long as they're controlled and we're aware of those. And so for me, it's about awareness, about self-awareness of where I'm resilient, where I'm not resilient. You know, so if I want to lose weight, then, you know, stop buying biscuits in the supermarket. Because if I buy biscuits in the supermarket and then put them in the cupboard and I'm working from home all day, then they're sort of there. You know, and, and it, it, it's creating strategies to support your resilience as well as not just having this sort of badge you know, I'm resilient because because yes, people are and and some people are, you know, super resilient in environments where you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be, but then not particularly resilient in others. And you know, you can see that from you know people's attitudes to perhaps their sport sports or their attitude to to work, their attitude to relationships. Um, so I think it's more about understanding it in the context within which you operate. And also appreciating that there'll be times when you won't be so resilient. You know, there might be times when, you know, you do have a a piece of cake. It's my mother's birthday this weekend, so I had some cake. You know, ordinarily I'd be like, I'm trying to stay away from cake. But if I go for a bike ride and we stop halfway around, I may have a a coffee and a cake. So it's, 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 it's having those what's acceptable in the context. It's all about context for me. And when you, when we, because we operate as individuals, you know, for example, this is, it's just a sound record and it's not video. So, so there's sort of, sort of less, less pressure. Whereas if it was a video as well, you've got more to think about. It's not so much just what I say, but how I look. Um, And, and for some people, you know, that's not an issue. And for other people, they're very happy to, to be recorded. Uh, in terms of what they say but they don't really want the video on and, and things yeah. like that and, and and again we all respond differently so yeah, yeah i think developing our resilience is part of life it's part of 
being able to operate and cope. Um, but we also need to think about there are times when perhaps we're happy to, you know, um, climbing Everest would be another good example or climbing a mountain where there are plenty of mountaineers who are still on Everest who were overly resilient to the pressures of actually I probably should turn back. Yeah, yeah. And and that's when it can become dangerous. You know, when yeah. we, we, we become foolhardy. Yeah. We believe that we're stronger than, um, and so it, it, it's contextual. Yeah, yeah. I love the the mountain because you could just replace mountain with the stress of whatever is going on in work, that the things that you're trying to deliver, and all the other stresses of life, and push, 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 and then you're at the top of the mountain and you can't go back because you've fallen over. It's the mountain of yes. Mm. When people come along and say, "Could you do that? Yeah, oh, could you do that? that? Yeah." And and actually, one of the key things in in the tough attitude, there, there are some misconceptions with mental toughness. One is the sort of toughness piece. It's not about being physically tough, although in sport there are obviously advantages, uh, but in business it certainly isn't. And the other bit is this sort of concept of having a tough attitude. And the tough attitude is about being argumentative or difficult. It's actually about being tough to yourself. It's about saying no. And, and having the confidence to say no to people because that 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 mountain is the yes mountain that everybody embraces and says yeah I'll do that well I see what you and you know when I was working in business as a sort of senior leader and I would have people saying I want to do this and I would be saying no I know you want to and I know you're capable of doing it but you're not capable of doing it because you've got too much on so yeah. something will break at some point and I don't want to break you because a broken you is no good to me at all but a high functioning you which is where you are today is great but you have to say no to this or you have to drop something um, and I'm a trustee for a charity and we have uh, some very capable people in the charity but but they're always on the edge of breaking in a sense or I feel that they are uh, because they're constantly in those types of environments trying to get as much out of themselves as they can because they don't have a lot of resource. So it's a real challenge. Mm. I've got a couple of clients at the moment One of, or that, that spring to mind. One of them is, um, I'm not going to identify anything, but they, this will just be so familiar to all, all companies really, but they have a couple of people in the organisation that are really capable and are just the people you'd give stuff to just to get stuff done. And I can see, they can see that breaking point is possibly on the horizon. So that resilience, it's, it's that, it's, that's the dark side of resilience, isn't it, really, that you might accidentally break somebody if you don't go, actually, just because they can doesn't mean it's right for them to take it. Absolutely. And the other challenge is that when you, you promote those people, there's an expectation that the person that comes in behind them is the same, yeah. same level of resilience, culpability. And this is where this culpability, capability balance falls over for, for a lot of organisations is that they, they go, yes, capable, can do, is an accountant, is a lawyer, has been in sales, sales director, whatever those things are. And, and, and you measure that individual based upon their capabilities of things that they've done, but not things that they're about to do. Um, and that's always the challenge. Are you culpable? And that's, you know, it's the sort of Peter principle. Everybody gets promoted to a level of incompetence. 
and and it's predominantly not about capability it's about culpability yeah. um, so it's a real challenge and, and, and i i agree i see it in a lot of the businesses i work with a lot of the stuff we've done historically around process improvement when when you look at where businesses want to fix themselves and then you identify the individuals that they want to put into the teams there's always two or three people that are in every team yeah. and you and you're like well but they they can't be in every team you know it's sort of like unless you're gonna unless you're gonna clone them then yeah. you they can't do their day job and all of this and <laughs> and then a lot of it boils down to trust then and so um you know, for, for a lot of organisations, it's about how do you build trust in and, and help people demonstrate that they've got a level of resilience because all you tend to do is you have this sort of resilience magnet that it's sort of like, oh, we'll keep testing that person there because they can give them more, let them let them carry more, give them another box to carry. And there's plenty of people stood around and going, well, I could carry some of this, but no one mm-hmm. wants to give me anything. And No, that's true. And that person is probably, might also be grabbing at the boxes because they like feeling needed. They like that mountain of yeah, absolutely. Yeah, work, work workload is a life belt. Um, yeah, yeah. It, 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 and and it's that sort of yes because I, I when someone asks you to do something, in a sense, you feel wanted. Mm. And so people are like, oh, oh, that I, I feel in need. I feel in demand. I feel valued in a sense. When someone doesn't ask you to do something, you don't feel valued. And so when people sort of ask, and, and, and again, that comes back to you as an individual around your self-efficacy and confidence, that, that you don't need to be asked, that actually you don't mind that somebody else is being asked. Um, and so people are constantly putting themselves forward to, to do things because they don't want somebody else to potentially be seen as the person that's more capable or culpable than they are. Um, and then you also then get people who just become bystanders and go right. Well, you carry on. I'll just wait till you fail, and then I'll yeah. come along and I'll come along and pick up the pieces. Um, and and in a sense, you get pushed, you get shoved further out into the sort of almost an old man's land of being able to sort of survive and thrive. And you know, I see it regularly with people who, you know, ultimately just you know come tumbling down. Something breaks. You know, they'll, yeah. they'll go off sick. You know, you can see that, that you know they're not looking after themselves. They start becoming shorter in meetings, and and it's that resilience starting to waver. And and this is the irony when you come back to it is that they are resilient, but then you load them to a point where it breaks, mm, and they don't look resilient. <laughs> no, no, and it's sort of what you you want to be able to. You know, it's a little bit like you know we don't do this in work, but the footballers, you know, they measure their physiology all the time now. They know how many yards they've run, you know, how quickly they're running. Um, and, 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 you know, they've assessed their physiology point where they know at the, which point in a game that they need to bring them off because actually they're now on that downward curve. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're not performing at the level and we've got people sat on the bench now that can come on and do a job. And so, you know, it's it's not about favoritism anymore. You know, yes, the strategy, but it's about the physiology. But we don't have that in work. We don't, you know, perhaps once a year we'll give someone an MOT, um, or you know, we'll give them the opportunity to go and talk to occupational health, which people rarely do, or you know, contact an EAP. And they've got they've probably got to break a bit first before that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, you, that's the problem. Is you you've got yeah. to almost we want to fix. 
things. We're good at fixing things. We're good at resolving things. Um, and as opposed to being proactive and thinking, right, how do I maintain the maximum output from the, the people in my team? And and then it becomes more complex then as you start to introduce that cross-functional team types environments. And, and businesses are complex. The, the, the key thing from my research was sport. Athletes are laboratory rats. They're, yes, they compete and they do stuff and we watch them on TV, but the physiologists and the psychologists at the universities who were studying them are just like, these are, these are lab rats that speak. You know, we can get them to do things and then notice afterwards what they felt like. Whereas you can't really do that with a mouse or a rat or any other sort of animal you may do experiments on. But, but you can with humans. They're brilliant. Um, but but you, you, they do one thing in isolation. You know, they'll, they'll train and do almost the same thing. Yeah, there's different training techniques. I used to be a swimmer, you know, literally up and down, up and down, following that black line. Yeah, again, there's different sets and stuff like that. But it's primarily that's your training regime. And then there's your competition regime. Um, that's it. Whereas in business, there's just so much more to it. Very the interrelationships with people, the changing dynamics of teams, the different types of people you have to deal with in internal and external. And then there's things like presentations, appraisals, managing up, managing down, managing sideways. It, it, it's just much more complex than the sport. And home life. Uh, absolutely and then balancing that that in you know if you look at elite athletes they a lot of the periphery around them is there to support lots of the things that are really not related to the core of what they do you know so you look at the lewis hamiltons of this world these pas and assistants and dietitians and um, you know, have a chef and, and, and all of these sort of elite athletes have built that infrastructure, have a manager that looks after the finances. You know, a lot of them, I was watching the Ricky Hatton program recently, you know, he didn't manage his own money. You know, he just boxed. He's an interesting boxing. and just want to box. Um, yeah. Although again, you know, his level of resilience when he wasn't boxing to stay off the, the pop and the crisps and the beer and, Drugs sometimes yeah, was, 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 was a challenge. And that's what sports people have that real challenge because they're super focused. Mm. And then when they're not, it's almost like they go the opposite way. Yeah. Um, it's like so resilience super- fatigue. <laughs> yeah. It's, in it, I know we're going to perhaps talk about bounce back. They sort, they yeah, sort I, was, of, I was coming on to that phrase. They sort of, they, they bounce from positive to negative in, 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 you know, there's a lot of them out there, especially in environments where you've got to be super, super resilient, super focused, you know, like the the boxers that put themselves into camps. You know, you, you've only got to look at like Nicky Hatton and Tyson Fury and how that plays on their psyche and their mentality of having the they switch off by just binging. And some cyclists do it. Other cyclists don't. They maintain it all the way through. Some footballers don't drink, don't smoke. So when season's off, they just carry on not drinking and not smoking. Whereas other footballers, um, you know, look at uh, Eden Hazard, who went to Real Madrid, overweight, left Chelsea as probably one of the best players in the Premiership, switched off, couldn't switch back on. Yeah. And, and some of them really struggle with that on and off. And that, that's at either end of the spectrum. Real contrast, um, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I'm just pulling you away from this episode because I want to share with you how you can get a copy of the free guide that I've created in which I share with you several of the techniques that I use with my coaching clients today and that you can use too, which will help you create more of an impact as a leader, have more influence and the holy grail, have more time away from the doing. You can use this time for key things like focusing on strategic thinking or going for a bike ride. If you want to grab the free guide, check out the show notes and click on the link. Because bouncing back is often the description that someone gives for resilience, isn't it? Your ability to bounce back. And I've heard various things about that phrase. What are your thoughts? I mean, back to the resistance piece, if you're resistant, there's no bouncing back because it doesn't affect you. And then essentially resilience is there's levels. So I have none, so I completely fail, but I can get back. And some people describe that coming back as the resilience piece or that sort of bouncing back. The, the problem with bounce back is we never go back to exactly where we were. We, we might go back to a point where we might run the 100 metres in 10 seconds. Um, or we might go back to playing in a particular team that we're in. But we never we never lose the experience. So I, I used to play rugby and, and I broke my leg a couple of times. The first time I broke my leg, I was only in cast for a few days. It didn't really affect me psychologically. It was it was insignificant. Um, but the second time I broke my leg, it you know it properly snapped in two. And you know, I was in cast for four months and didn't really go back to playing rugby for two years and, and it affected me. And, and I got back to the same level of fitness. I got back to playing for the same teams in the same positions, the same speed. But it was still there in my head. That, that experience that I'd been through, I, I couldn't get rid of it. You know, it changed the way that I approached the game. I, I, and it wasn't so much in the moment when I was playing. I didn't think about it, but it was before and it was after. And I think anybody who... Sort of thing. We bounce forward. Yeah. We never bounce back to where we will never be the same mm-hmm. as we were before the adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that resistance piece, for me, is where you can forget, in a way, what's gone on. There is no resilience to it. There's no thinking of it. But I think to get to that point is really difficult because you, you just carry it with you. Yeah. And, and but over time you can sort of get to where you were in performance, um, and and to some degree you can deal with the demons of perhaps what you've you've had. Yeah. But I think you can only really bounce forward because yeah. in dealing with the demons you become a different person. You you're not the yeah. person you were before, and I think people expect when people go off sick, for example, or, or they have a challenge with their resilience in the workplace that they're going to come back and be the same person and. And they're not, you know, one of the reasons why people, you know, presenteeism is such a big issue is that people don't want the stigma of being off. Yeah. They don't want the stigma of being ill. They don't want to be seen as well also to be not resilient or almost it's a sort of devaluing of themselves in that I, I don't want people, I don't want to feel as though people can cope without me. Um, yeah. And so I'm going to stay. 
Um, so I think bounce the sort of bounce back ability, in a way, is that is that from performing to nothing and back to performing. That journey back is really in the sense that bounce back yeah. ability, but you yeah. never get back to where you were. Yeah, and it might be that you you're in a better place if actually Absolutely. that well, adversity. Yeah, just... I, I, because you know where your breaking point is. And, yeah. and, and again, that's one of the things in the training environment from a sport perspective is you can break yourself in training. You know what, you know, how hard to push yourself, you know, if you're a runner, you know, how fast to go off. I mean, you know, the vast majority of swimming events are, uh, are, are races, they're not sprints. The most of athletics are races, not sprints. And so it's not zero to nothing, sorry, zero to everything and then you know, when you run the 100 metres, you don't need to breathe because the oxygen you're breathing doesn't get to your muscles fast enough. So literally, you just blast. The same with swimming. You know, I used to do 50 metres, um, you know, and anything under sort of 26 seconds, I was not necessarily that quick, but you know, you, your oxygen, the oxygen you're breathing in doesn't get to your muscles. So you don't need to be doing those things. People still breathe because psychologically they think they need to. But, but actually, once you go beyond that and you're into race, and tactics and so then you can test your ability to be able to sustain that performance because it is not about getting to maximum as fast as possible and, and optimizing performance it's about maintaining performance which is quite different so in training you can you can practice that you can go off slightly faster you can change those sort of what you call negative splits go off slower finish faster etc whereas in business it's harder because you don't want to you don't want to fail. You don't want to break. In the vast majority of environments, probably the one environment where people do embrace and accept failure, um, oddly, is in sales. Because yeah. all sales all salespeople know that they're never going to win every pitch. Um, and, you know, there are times when somebody else will, will get there before you. There are times when perhaps your pitch didn't quite resonate with the client because what you're pitching isn't quite what they want, etc. So I think you know, we have to accept the fact that we need that control and understanding of resilience levels um, and what that and what impact it can have. And what we don't want to do is break people so that they have to have that sort of bounce back or, you know, and again, it's, you know, how much do you break them? How much do you criticise them? Do you do, you, do you do it in small chunks? So you, 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 you sort of test their resilience ever so slightly, but you don't, unload the 10 things they did wrong you just focus yeah, on one yeah yeah um as opposed to right here's 10 you know you almost destroy their personality and character as a consequence of your feedback and they're like yep. right okay i'm not sure i can come back from this so so i think we'll good, good next place to go is thinking about the so what so we've talked all around it challenge some ideas of what that word means and what it looks like but thinking about business owners, leaders, how do we get the balance right as a leader around building resilience in a way that has fewer downsides? I think it's about, for me, it's about balance and understanding understanding the people. I think if you only understand one aspect of the pressure on a person but there are multiple aspects then you're at risk because you can only control one component 
you know, so we we know we have this concept of a work-life balance, which is really more work-life battle. And and those are pressures that are put on everybody. And those can be family-oriented, it can be uh, sexuality-oriented, it can be society, social orientation, both uh, sort of social media or just, you know, generally people feeling lonely or overwhelmed or whatever those sorts of things are. So I think as a leader, what you've got to be able to understand is that there's a finite quantity of capacity and capability and copability within your within your organization. And actually, you, you rely on your managers or your leaders below you to, to try to maximize that sort of effort, that human energy. Um, and to be able to do that, we need to understand what the stresses and strains and the pressures are on, on the individuals, as well as also then understanding what's the balance. So you know, if you've got a group of individuals who are, you know, almost like universal soldiers, super, super resilient, can chomp through work and they're just pushing it constantly onto others who, who can't, then you're going to create an imbalance. And, and we know things like there's sort of bottlenecks and flow, but there's also a sort of bottlenecks and flow from a resilience perspective where certain individuals can put pressure on others as a consequence of the way that they perform. And it's one of the downsides of mental toughness is you've got someone who's mentally tough. It can be either inspiring or it can be intimidating. And it's the same with resilience. So when you've got somebody who's super resilient and, and, and are able to cope with the stresses and pressures and are constantly saying, yes, I'll do more, one, they will break at some point. Everyone breaks. You know, it's a little bit like interrogation. You know, you will break at some point. And you know, yeah. almost work is... Sometimes work is almost like that sort of, it's like being interrogated, you know, by the you know, CIA. You, you're constantly, things are being dropped on you, sort of like you know, water torture of volumes Brilliant. of work. Some of it's self-inflicted. Some of it's as a consequence of other people's behavior. So I think from a leadership perspective, it's about being cognizant of these things and, and how, they, how they occur. That's not to say that every leader has to be a psychologist. It's just... You can see these things. You can see that some people are saying yes too often. You can see where workloads being moved. You can see where people have skills and don't have skills. You can see when actually asking someone to do something that's really going to put them out of their comfort zone, you know. And and we're generally resilient in our comfort zone, and um, but as soon as we start to come out of that, you know, our resilience gets challenged because we start to doubt ourselves. We and again that doubt and choking and starting to think about things. Uh, means that we tend not to perform our capacity and we can be off our game we can stutter or we can we can freeze I remember watching Malcolm Gladwell talk a number of years ago and he got up on stage and he stuttered for the first two or three minutes and I was thinking I'm not sure I can do 45 minutes of this it was painful and he, he was like I, I, my 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 name my my name is um 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 Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell, and, and I was thinking, oh my God, he's, you know, he's, not he's what a great you'd have expected, would it? He's a yeah. terrible. But, but then, he, but then he flipped into uh, what he was uncomfortable with was introducing himself. What he was comfortable with was his content. So then, he's, as soon as he went into this is my book, and I, and he just went off, and he was absolutely amazing. And it was just a clear example of where someone was not resilient to, and it was on the stage. The first couple of minutes, he was like shocking then he got in the flow he got into what he was who he was into his comfort and he was away he answered questions he was brilliant and that's the challenge when we're, we're leading people is that we've got that responsibility of all of the people that are 
in the areas that we're responsible for have an ability to deliver a level of you know output quality that is both positively uh, impacting the individual and as well as also the organization and it's about putting people in the right places so that they're not doing things they don't want to do i mean and, and that's one of the things where we see people who become less resilient or they start to have challenges it's not because of necessarily this adverse effect it's because they just run out of energy the sort of concept of burnout is that they just can't keep fooling themselves that they enjoy it they yeah. just they just don't um and something comes along it's a bit like your immune system you might be okay generally you, you know we're always under attack and then things like covid comes along and knocks people over because their immune system's like i'm gonna make i can't cope with this now i'm just about yeah. coping with everything else that's going on and resilience is the same so i think from a leadership perspective it's really about understanding what people's resilience levels are where people are near breaking point when you've got an imbalance what does that do to the team dynamics and, and then how do other teams levels of resilience impact your teams and the individuals and how do they work so you know you've got a lot of challenge there as a, you know and, and that's where you've got to stop managing the person in the sense of you know looking at them sheets and all of those sorts of things it's about you manage processes but you lead people and you have a responsibility to be that overwatch for them because a lot of people don't think about their resilience mm, yeah yeah absolutely and if you notice there's an imbalance in the team and you notice someone's resilience is a bit lower i can i can see what you could do with people that have got high resilience and that are having lots of stuff thrown at them and there's a variety of things you can do around them saying no to more things or you you balancing what you actually give them but what if you notice someone's resilience is not that high what would you do i i Sort of back to the sort of classic Lean Six Sigma stuff. You, you sort of need to do a bit of a root cause on, on what it is. It, it, are you part of the problem? I.e., the the organisation is the team or the or is there something external to that? In, you know, from a well being perspective, is it you know financial well being issues that's going on? Is it physiological? Is it is it mental? Um, you know, are there some professional well being issues that I'm training and development? Are you, are they doing something that's not necessarily aligned to their values? Um, I had, uh, I had a, in one of the exec roles I had, I had a super resilient guy who managed a particularly complex client, a national grocer, um, one of the big four. And it, the relationship was fantastic. He'd worked there for a significant number of years. And the, the 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 contract was a sort of very open contract or historically had been and, and organizations made money in some different ways and, and then it became very contractually oriented and there were things that we were doing that historically had people had turned a blind eye to sort of rebates and kickbacks on things like that nothing illegal but it was just the way that the industry operated but this particular individual was completely oblivious to it but then when it came out and, and the client was particularly critical of us as an organization, um, it, it really grated against his values. Um, and he, he took it personally that they effectively said that we were cheating them out of money. And he took it personally. And, and, you know, and he, he ultimately left. 
but he had a bit of a breakdown because he was like, I the values I held and I hold aren't necessarily being sort of manifest in the way that we're managing this contract and 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 it's reflecting on me. And and so that you know, we we quickly saw, you know, a change in his behaviour, his change in his attitude as a consequence of that. And it was nothing. It was nothing to do with him. He, he was completely oblivious to it all. He hadn't paid party to it, and it was it was an endemic problem that had been gone on for years and years. It was something we were unbundling as an activity, but it was just part of the industry. It was quite a complex pro- problem. But he was completely oblivious. But when it became evident, you know, his resilience changed. You know, yeah. he, he did drop, um, and he and he didn't bounce back at all. He, he just bounced out. And that's what happens to a lot of people. They don't bounce back, bounce forward, they just bounce out. Um, and that's that's the challenge really as a to leaders when you spot these people, it's it's understanding are, are they right for this sort of environment? Have we we employ for capability, we don't employ for culpability. So we look at them on paper. It's why a lot of recruits fail, it's because you know. One of my other jobs, we used to recruit for a sales team and they had, say, 50 people in the team and we'd recruit 50 people every year. But 25 of those people were long-term employees. So we effectively recruited for half the roles twice a year. Really inefficient recruitment process. So, Lee, I know we've talked a lot about resilience and the different ways in which it can be considered much more contextual i think that's such a good good bit of um insight there lee about how one day you might feel it for the, for one thing and the next day not and it's not a badge which is always useful the term well-being i know that the, your business is all around measuring well-being so well resilience one fits into the well-being category as we come to a close could you give some tips for leaders who want to increase well-being sure the, the four things that we tend to advise on from a sort of leadership perspective when it comes to well-being is i think leaders have to be the change that they want to see i think it was sort of gandhi said that ultimately but i think if if you're if you don't put your well-being first if you don't think about your well-being as a leader of an organization then how can you get the individuals in your organization to do the same thing? Um, I think the real challenge here is that we're generally irresponsible. Everyone's irresponsible. We know we go through life, and if we actually had a little ticker in the corner that said, when you do this, you're getting yourself, you know, it's like an acceleration, a little bit like the electricity meter. So you're accelerating towards death faster as a consequence of this. People will change the way that they did things. They would change the things they do. Um, but because we've got this sort of NHS or insurance policies or we've got sick pay and all of these things that, like, you know, if I do these things, some someone somewhere will rectify this, recover me, will sort of, you know, bring me back. It's sort of artificial resilience in a sense. Um, that People tend to not think about the fact that our brains and our bodies aren't two separate things. We We need to exercise both of those. We need to you know, be as the best we can be in all sorts of aspects of whether that's in work or in life as a parent, as a partner, etc. So I think you've got to want to be able to 
do that. And, you know, leaders do generate influence um, on the people that work in the environments. And, and so if you're someone who puts an emphasis on your well-being, it can have that sort of um, inspiring effect on people. But when you've got a leader who doesn't really put any effort into well-being or their well-being or you know doesn't take time off, works ridiculous hours, drinks and smokes and sort of almost has a haphazard view on you know whether they'll live long, then it doesn't have a positive effect on the workforce, especially if you're saying well-being is important. And we know that healthy and well employees are much more engaged and much more productive and it's more beneficial for an organisation. And so if you don't have healthy and well employees, then it's going to reduce engagement, reduce productivity. And we know the cost of poor productivity or poor well-being is about £100 billion a year in the UK. So there's a lot to go after. So I think at the top, you've got to lead by example. But what you can't do is say, this is how it needs to be done. I think in 2001, there was a guy called, well, two guys called Swartz, wrote an article from the Harvard Business Review called The Corporate, uh, Corporate Athlete, and they introduced this thing called the ideal performance state. Um, and, and all that really happened was that chief executives who read the Harvard Business Review thought, oh, I get this. We need to all go out. And they all became triathletes and they all became super fit, but they didn't really transcend it into the business. So they just got super fit, bought these expensive bikes and went on these retreats and everybody else was sort of like, yeah, but what do we do? And it was like, well, we don't really care because it's, you know, we're, we're elite now in business and now we're elite in sport or we're trying to be. Um, and, and so it's really about saying, okay, I'm going to take my health and well-being um, important, you know, important, make it a priority, but I'm going to help you do the same. But I'm not going to get you to do what I do. So just because I go mm-hmm. running or I go swimming, everyone should be a runner. Everyone should be a swimmer. You know, I've stopped drinking. Everyone should stop drinking. I've stopped smoking. Everyone should stop smoking. It's, it, it, you know, those well-being challenges that people face are, are idiosyncratic. So you've got to make it personal. You've got to understand the individual and you've got to understand the journey that they're on. So the well-being challenges of a, an 18 to 25-year-old are significantly different to the well-being challenges of a 40 to 50-year-old. We're all going to go through experiences that are going to challenge our well-being or our capacity to perform. That can be buying a house. It can be marriage. It can be divorce of parents. It can be divorce that you go through. It can be medical issues. It can be bereavements. We're all going to experience those things. And so as a leader, you need to be mindful of when these things happen, how are we responding? And very few organizations get ahead of the curve and have a way of dealing with it. They might have a policy, but a policy is just a piece of paper. It's not a process or a practice. It's not a habit. It's not what they do. Um, and, and so you've got to be able to make it personal and you've got to make it accessible for the individual as well. I think the third element, and there's four, the third is don't be afraid to, to seek external advice. But because, you know, if you're running an engineering business or you're you know, even when you run in a care home, you know how to care for the people in the care home, but actually do you know how to care for your employees? You're running an engineering business. Do you really understand how to develop a, a well-being plan for, for employees? You know how to deal with people in the latter stages of their lives that might have particular, you know, neuro or physiological issues, but have you really got a plan for caring for your employees? And and how do you do that? So now, some organizations are better than others. They employ people at you know head of well-being or director of well-being and, and have invested significant sums. 
But I think the real challenge with a lot of those is they're still failing. So, you know, if we're living longer, we're investing more money in well-being, then why are sick days going up? Um, so, so we're not necessarily getting it right. The reason for that really is, one, we don't make it personal. We don't make it personal because we don't understand, because we don't collect the data. And the other thing is we don't measure it. And so the fourth component, which is where my business sort of sits and operates, is if you want to improve something, you need to be able to measure it. You know, whether that's your mental toughness, and there are some mental toughness tools out there that give you a sort of measure, whether that's resilience. You, you need to find a way of saying, okay, how do I get a view that this is improving? You know, can I cope with doing four things a day? Can I cope with doing five things a day? Um, and certainly in the well-being space, what we do is we provide organizations with the ability to measure and track well-being and happiness so that when you do the right things, when you demonstrate leadership, when you make it personal, when you bring in the right support, that actually you can go, yes, it's improved. Because ultimately, whatever you want to do, if you want to improve it, you need to be able to measure it. Otherwise, how do you demonstrate you've improved it? So, yeah. Be the change you want to see, make well-being personal. Don't be afraid to seek support and, and make sure you measure it. Is the four things I would suggest. Thank you. It was great speaking to you. I feel like we've really dug into that subject, but also come away with some ideas about what we can do differently, which is where I always like these conversations to end up. Where do we find you, Lee, if we wanted you to measure our well-being? Uh, on LinkedIn. So. Um, my Wellbeing Index is the name of the company. Our product's called Kaya. So we're online. You can find us at Kaya Wellbeing Index. Uh, uh, Lee Williams. How do you spell on, Kaya? On K-A-Y-A. Super. And sorry, I interrupted you. And Dr. Lee Williams. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, Dr. Lee Williams on LinkedIn as well. People can find me there. Um, but our product's available. People can just download it. We've We've taken a expensive complex consulting solution and digitized it so it's more for more for the masses in a sense it helps people get on that journey historically only big companies with deep pockets have been able to to measure well-being um and that's even that's been been a challenge before ram developed my business partner developed his tool so uh, yeah brilliant well thank you it was lovely to speak to you no problem thank you Thanks for listening to the Visible Leader podcast. To stay up to date with the latest episode, hit the subscribe button. And I'd love to hear what you think, so please leave me a review. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to me, Corinne Hines on LinkedIn.